Welcome to this week's Alpha Architect Weekly Research Summary. We have Dr. Jack Vogel. We have not Dr. Ryan Curlin. Um, this week we're going to go through three research papers. Uh, the first one we're going to go through, it was titled Trend Following on Steroids. Um, so Jack, just to go back a little bit to the basics, what is trend following? It, it's simply, you know, taking the past returns on any asset class and essentially using whatever look back period you have. If it's trending up, you stay invested. If not, you go to cash, high level. That's trend following. Got it. Um, and w what does the author in this paper, um, I can't totally pronounce his name, Wouter Keller, uh, no, no offense for mispronouncing your name, that, that's kind of how we say uh, water here in Philadelphia, Wouter. Um, but what, what does he do to make, uh, to make a trend following on steroids then? Yeah. So this, you know, the, the blog post is actually, I would say, uh, an example of kind of the paper that's underlying the story, right? Um, and, and kind of what they do is they try to, and, uh, Wooter also has a, you know, flexible asset allocation, which is another paper in the past that we've highlighted on our site. But so specifically on this paper, what they do is kind of three things. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to just discuss what we showed on our blog. Uh, perturbations of it are also done in the paper. But so three things were done. One is um, to, as opposed to, you know, just looking at the S&P 500 kind of as a signal, they use, you know, other asset classes as well, such as like, uh, you know, stocks and bonds, like world stocks and bonds, yeah. right? So if they're negative, that's like a bad signal, okay? Yeah. Uh, the second thing that they do is they use like this more advanced, I would say, uh, so as opposed to using, which they recommended in previous papers, you use just like an average of like one month, three months, six, nine, 12, look back, moving average rules. What they do here is they, they like weight it whereby they give more weight to more recent signals. Yeah. So therefore, I think, yeah, I forget one. the exact number, but the one month rule has like a 40% weight. Right. The two month rule and three month rule will have 15 and it goes down, right? right? So it's a more quicker moving signal. The, yeah, the, the signal has more weight, yeah. So, so the, the more, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so you're averaging that out though. You're, or I shouldn't say averaging, but you're combining them all together. How, yeah. how much Com has the price changed in one month? Yeah, combining all yeah. of the signals. Yeah. So as opposed to just saying, hey, my one month says I'm out, 12 months says I'm in, so 50-50. Yeah. This signal would say, hey, my one month says I'm out, my 12 months says I'm in, but my one month has a higher weight. Therefore, I'm more out than in, yeah. right? And so that's the second part. And then the third part, at least in, in the blog post and describing the paper, is on the cash component. Right, you can do like cash or, so they kind of look at like short-term cash and then, you know, IEF or like intermediate treasuries or like levered IEF, right? So taking a little, like levering up the duration bit. Yep, and, two, two times leverage. Yeah, and so they can use that as a cash component. And, you know, if you do all three of those things, you get pretty good results. Yeah, so, so the trend following signal is this, this weighted average, which Jack described, or weighted, however we want to term. Um, uh, weighted and then and then switching to there's these options yeah um, you know either just cash or maybe two times the tr uh, treasury or 
there was a third one, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, but so then, so yeah, so you're switching back and forth between these, these uh, things. And then the, the question then is, um, which the author brings up in the paper, uh, he, he notes that this weighting he does, weighting one month signals the heaviest and then 12 month the least heavy, uh, the author notes it causes him to get faster out of the market when the market starts to turn down, but it also causes them to get faster back in the market when it's turning up. Um, and this is kind of interesting because this is a little bit something we'll get into in the, in the third paper uh, that we're talking about from AQR today. But uh, but so is it possible due to getting out faster and getting back in faster, right? So what they call fast momentum, is it possible uh, these the trading costs could be a significant drag on this in the real world? So it, it could be, but I think more so for this article because, and especially what we highlighted, what they what we wrote about on our site is just S&P and treasury bonds. Uh-huh. And they're pretty much like the two, two of the most liquid assets in the world, like yeah. buying the U.S. stocks, market cap weighted, and buying U.S. T-bills or bonds, right? They're super liquid. So I think for this strategy, transaction costs will play a part, but the I would say... The bigger concern, in my opinion, would probably be taxes because it'd be a lot of trading. Because yep. as you mentioned, you get out a lot, but you also get back in a lot. Great. Um, yeah. And like I said, this this move it down. Okay. Sorry. It's good. So, like I said, uh, there, there's going to be something we um, uh, cover more in the third paper there. So I don't want to get too deep into that. But uh, uh, I guess. So, what are the, any other takeaways from this paper? No, it's just, uh, you know, basically it's it would, it's kind of what you'd expect. You know, if you use more signals, you're going to have more variations in and out. You use more short-term signals, you're going to have more ins, more outs a lot quicker. Yep. So I and, would say, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. Um, and obviously the biggest concern for any investor probably trying to do that is the taxes. Yeah, and, and his results showed something like he got 15% uh, compound annualized returns on this around there with the small drawdown but again you know not indicative of future results (laughs) not indicative okay um so okay so that that's the first paper second paper how to use trend following within a portfolio this was written by jack so uh jack you started with this simple question how should i use trend following within a portfolio the title um so what's the general idea you wanted to get across yeah, so the idea here is, you know, um, trend is people, you can argue it's a factor, right? And we'll talk about that in the third paper, different factors. But you, you, you could say trend following is a factor, right? And a lot of times what people like to do is do trend following on like equities, yep. okay? And so a natural question is, how do I use this in a portfolio, right? So other factors that are commonly cited, portfolios are built around within equities, such as value, momentum, quality, low vol, it's pretty simple how to use that, right? Yep. So if you right now have a 100% passive portfolio and you happen to like the value factor, you just maybe do 80% equity, you know, 20%, you know, value, right? If you're like a big believer. If you're a big believer, maybe do 100%, yep. right? But with trend following on equities, and an interesting question and one we've been getting a lot is how do you use it? Because what happens is you're, you're not always in equities, right? So your portfolio can be sometimes in equities, sometimes in cash, 
right? Or in a hedge position. So a natural question is like, how do I use this? Yep. Okay. So then, so you reviewed some basic trend following facts just to set up the paper a little bit. Could you just hit those? Yeah. I mean, the basic high level trend following facts, this is true generally on just using simple long-term 12 month rules on almost any asset class. You generally receive similar returns to that asset class, but with lower drawdowns. Um, over long time periods with the caveat, which I put in there, being that it clearly doesn't work all the time, right? You're going to get whipsawed from time to time. You can lose for a long time. I've written an article about that, how trend following can underperform for a long time. But the whole idea is to try to get the asset class return, but reduce drawdowns, which to some investors is important. For some people, they don't care. Right. Okay. Um, so this, this then, or we're going to try to do this rapid fire to make it uh, a little bit less boring, make people falling asleep, but we're going to try to hit on the results real quick. Um, okay, so knowing those facts, trend following gives you similar returns in, in all the different asset classes, but it gives you different returns um, and it can underperform for a very long time hitting that. Um, we're going to go through the, the different versions that Jack looked at, and it was all off of riffs of um, uh, like a 40% bond, 60% stock portfolio, 60% stock, 40% bond, 80% stock, 20% bond portfolio, and then an all stock portfolio. So you just kept looking at those four variations. Um, so let, let's hit on these results for each iteration that Jack went through with, the, with those kind of base things. So um, pure 40% S&P 500, 60% bonds, and then 60% stocks, 40% bonds, 80% stocks, 20% bonds, and the all stock portfolio, right? So this is just generic portfolios. Um, what were the key takeaways? Yeah, well, so obviously there's a reason advisors have a stock bond allocation. Yep. Historically, if you had more stocks, higher returns, bigger drawdowns, higher portfolio standard deviation. Yep. However, when you happen to have you know, more bonds in the portfolio, you had lower returns, but less standard deviation in the portfolio, as well as, uh, you know, less drawdowns. Yep. So as, as you move from 40% bonds to 60% bond portfolio to, to an all stock portfolio and everything in between, that's kind of the summary, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, okay. Uh, so then essentially on the next, on the next iteration you looked at, you just merged a 10% weighting of a trend followed S&P 500 portfolio um, into those portfolios. So for example, instead of the standard 60-40, it became 54% S&P 500, 36% treasury bonds with a 10% trend followed S&P 500. So with 10% trend followed added in um, to, to, to these portfolios, what happened? Yeah, I mean, you generally receives, you know, slightly higher returns because trend following was positive bit over that time period. Um, and, and, you know, similar standard deviations, slightly lower drawdowns depending on the variation. But in general, across the board, it was slightly higher returns. Got it. So adding, adding in trend following helped diversify the portfolio a little bit and, and give you a little bit higher returns. Got it. So then the next iteration, you removed only a portion of the bond portfolio and kept and put in a 10% weighting. So 10% uh, weighting of the S&P 500 trend followed. So it would be instead of 60-40 again, it would be 60% stocks, 30% uh, bonds, and 10% um, this 
S&P 500 trend followed. Uh, then what did that show? I mean, it was similar to the first one, but so in, in that you had slightly higher returns, right? Uh, but what happens is, you know, when you pull out some bonds, throw in some trend, you still, you, you took out the one thing that has less standard deviation. So on average, the portfolios had slightly higher standard deviation, slightly higher drawdowns. Got it. So that again, kind of, it's all moving intuitively, right? We're going from this most basic portfolio to uh, merging in trend following with equity and bonds to removing a portion of the bonds only and replacing that with bonds. Um, and then the last thing you looked at was adding in international stocks to the stock portion. So a 60, 40, uh, stock to bond portfolio became, um, in, instead of 60% U.S. stocks, it became 30% S&P 500, 30% international developed stocks, and then 40% bonds. Um, so again, when we added in the international component, generally, what did those results show? Yeah, so two takeaways. One is, uh, I think as many people know who have international stocks, on average, that actually just lowered the returns relative to the baseline. Yep. Um, but then, you know, as you throw in trend following, so I did the same iter iterations on, on trend following, and as you throw that in, you generally get similar results in the U.S. Got it. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, so, so what, what, are, what are the big takeaways on, on the paper then? Yeah, the, the takeaways were that I tried to show that, you know, with trend in a portfolio, what I'd say is I just gave two examples where you could use it. One is you take your standard portfolio, and just give it like a 90% weight, allocate 10% to trend. You could obviously do five or up to 20, right? But that was just one way. Another way is, and it's a slightly riskier because you're taking on more stock potentially, but with trend, the other way was to take a portion of the bond portfolio and throw that into trend followed equities. So those were the two suggestions and I showed just baseline results using standard S&P and EFI portfolios. Got it. Okay, great. Um, so then the third paper we're going to look at, which uh, I th it's a it's a very educational paper uh, from AQR, so kind of to be expected. But um, so it, it was called measuring factor exposures, uses and abuses. So I'm just going to read their, their summary real quick on, on how they did it. Um, so they get they start with a growing number of investors have come to view their portfolios especially equity portfolios as a collection of exposures to risk factors the most prevalent and widely harvested of these risk factors is the market equity risk premium but there are also others such as value and momentum style premium Measuring ex exposures to these factors can be a challenge. Investors need to understand how factors are constructed and implemented in their portfolios. They also need to know how statistical analysis may be best applied. Without the proper model, rewards for factor exposures may be misconstrued as alpha, and investors may be misinformed about the risk their portfolios truly face. This paper seeks to serve as a practical guide for investors looking to measure portfolio factor exposures. Okay, so this paper gives a great, succinct, succinct history of factors that I recommend you go read. Um, but skipping that, Jack, how do the authors show you can measure factor exposure? Yeah, so uh, first off, this is a good paper, especially if you're just learning about factor investing. They actually give pretty good intro uh, on how to do some of this stuff, like in the appendix appendices of the paper. Yep. 
Um, they have different things about you know what R squared is, how to do the regressions, et cetera, T stats. So it's definitely worthwhile, just say it up front. And, and so then, uh, you know, how to get exposures, generally you do that via linear regression, which they discuss in the paper. Yeah. Okay. And can you kind of define what a, a linear regression is or, or give a simplified answer? Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, it, I think maybe it's, it's good to dig into kind of their first example that okay. they do in the paper that I think is very instructive yep. to highlight. And I think was very, a good example just to show, um, what investors like factor what what factors they're loading on right yep. and so what they what they did was they just took you know very simple value and momentum small cap portfolio right and so all they did is they said hey we're gonna look at small cap stocks sort them on value sort them on momentum nothing nothing complicated yep. run a regression against the one factor model which is just the market nothing nothing complicated to you and what you notice to a lot of other right people. and so you say hey you know the market over this time period had seven percent return this portfolio had 14% return. So, you know, if it's, and again, I'm rounding the numbers here. They're not exact. But if it was 14 and 7, you'd say, hey, your alpha is 7%, right? And so then they say, hey, but really, what do we do? We load it on small caps, value, and momentum. Yep. And so then it, they, they then show, hey, what happens in step two if we just add this second risk factor, value? What you see is now you have a loading on value, which maybe accounts for 2%, and your alpha went down to 5%. Yep. Then you add size and your value and momentum sum up to, I forget, maybe 4%. Your alpha is now 3. Then in the third, fourth example, they add momentum. And you see your alpha is really only like, you know, 1.8% or, or thereabouts. And, and it's instructive, though, just to show that, hey, even though the portfolio had the same return, its alpha was really just driven by exposure to three commonly known risk factors, which were value, size, and momentum. Okay, because and, and they get into it a little bit, but, but alpha, alpha versus beta. What what is alpha? So alpha would be like the unexplained portion of the return. So in my example that I gave you, you know, if you have a fourteen percent return portfolio, the market returns seven, right? And, and technically, you have to run regressions to get this, but just, let's just do simple math. You return fourteen, market returns seven. Your alpha is around seven percent, right? Um, and then what they show is, you know, if you add more risk factors, a lot of times that alpha shrinks due to the fact that most managers are generally taking bets on certain other risk factors that are known out there. Right. So, yeah. So, so momentum is maybe explaining some of that difference between 14 and seven yeah. values, maybe, um, explaining some of that difference between 14 and seven. Got it. Um, okay. Uh, uh, Th their last section is on factor differences between academics and practitioners. Again, I you know this is just very educational section um, uh, on on how to kind of analyze real world portfolios. So w what are what are some of the examples they use of how an academic uh, may look at an investment strategy versus versus how a practitioner may look at an investment strategy? Yeah, so I'll just do two. Yeah, because they're the most commonly known ones. I would say. Um, first one is, you know, a lot of times people don't just do one variable sorts, right? They talk about, you know, using a couple of variables, um, like even on value, right? They have a paper going back, shows like composite does pretty well relative to one, right? And others and what do you mean by like one variable versus Like just book variables. to market. Yep. So, so one some people may say, hey, I'll market, use book to market. Screen all and companies by, by book yeah, to market. Yeah, and that's it. 
that's one right. variable. Just, yep. just, just that. So a lot of people use multiple ones. You know, like we use value and quality. Yep. Some people use value, quality, momentum. Some people will just say value is a composite of these, right? So that's one. And then a second difference has to do, and I, I think this is probably important, has to do with, you know, your universe selection. Yep. So that's in academic portfolios, a lot of times, uh, you know, trying to explain like cross-section stock returns, look at all stocks. Yep. But in practitioner land, you know, you're probably not going to invest in too many stocks for most managers below the Russell 1000 yep. and for almost every manager, or, or I would say a high percentage of managers below the Russell 3000. Right. Right. So those are two ways where academic and practitioner portfolio construction is definitely different. Right. Different. And, and that goes back to what we talked about at, at the start of this, the, the question I had on, on the trading costs in the real world. Um, uh, but, and what you're talking about too, uh, something else they talk about here in AQR is I implementability. Um, so, you know, you, you can't, uh, you, you can't necessarily invest in the entire universe of investable stocks because it's impossible to trade those micro caps, right? If you were going to actually try to do it in the real world. Yeah. So some of the micro cap stocks have very low, uh, you know, capacity yeah. to be used in a value portfolio. Yeah. So, so that can be, you know, one, I guess, simple example of like, if you were trying to analyze a back test, somebody brought you this great thing and they're like, look how much it outperforms. Right. And, and if you saw that a huge amount of their investment was in micro caps, that, that could be a red flag, right? Like, Hey, could this actually work in the real world? Yeah. Right. And you know, possibly, and you know, the paper, so this paper mainly focuses on like linear regressions yeah. to pick up risk factors. Yeah. And so obviously in such an example, like you just stated, yeah. you know, if you just simply said, Hey, let's use a regression on this. And we see a massive loading on the SMB, the small minus big factor, yep. that would be indicative that in the past, the manager was loading on small cap stocks. Got it. Right. And so this paper just highlights, I would say it's very instructive about how you can use regressions. But, but, but that's interesting too, right? So then if, if, if that showed, if you do this analysis and it shows it has a big loading on SMB in the past, but now the manager has a ton of assets, right? They, they now manage a bunch. Um, that, that could lead you to question like, hey, maybe this isn't sustainable because he got his exposure in the past from small and now he's not small anymore. Yeah, and so that's where, you know, regressions will give you portfolio loadings, yep. right? But they're not perfect and that's where, that's where portfolio characteristics can possibly be more instructive, right, right. which is kind of what we have. We, we like, we're fans, I would say, more of characteristics, mm -hmm. but loadings are instructive. That is 100% true. Right. There's pros and cons to both approaches. Gotcha. Um, any other big takeaways on this paper? No, I think it's very instructive. Uh, gives readers an, uh, probably, I'd say, a high-level understanding of how one can use a linear regression to see how portfolios returns may be loading on well-known risk factors such as value, size, momentum, et cetera. Gotcha. Okay. So, so that's it for this week. We got trend following on steroids. We have how to use trend following within a portfolio. Um, and then, and then this last kind of real education on, on measuring factor exposures from AQR. Uh, thanks for tuning in. See ya. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, 
tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC, all rights reserved.